it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We welcome David Stein. He's the host of the terrific podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, and author of the book of the same name. He's here to educate us more about money, how it works, and how to invest, and how to live without worrying about money, which is a great topic to to uh, to know about. So uh, David is here to talk to us about uh, closed-end funds, as well as other fun stuff about the investing in stock market. So, David, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us, and we're very excited to learn more about you and all the great stuff you can share with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, I guess, uh, as I mentioned in, the, in a little intro there, let's talk about closed-end funds. I guess for those investors out there that are not familiar with that term, can you kind of help educate us a little bit about what those are? Sure, sure. So a, a closed-end fund was the original mutual fund. So it's, it's a commingled investment vehicle where you have shareholders, you have a professional money management team that is selecting the underlying stocks, it could be bonds, it could be equity REITs. But what's unique about closed-end funds that differs from an open-end mutual fund or an ETF is an open-end mutual fund, for example, is what we're most familiar with in a 401k plan. It trades at the end of the day. So the, the fund sponsor figure out who wants to buy shares, who's, who wants to sell shares. They net it out. They figure out the price of all their underlying assets. And then you exit or enter that fund. The market price equals the net asset value, which is the total assets divided by the share prices. Closed-end funds work differently. They trade on an exchange, just like an ETF does, but there isn't a mechanism to make sure that the value of the assets, the net asset value per share, equals the, the market price. 
And so there's some advantages to that because then the, the fund sponsor has this set pool of capital. They can invest in maybe some more illiquid securities. They can use leverage. But the, the challenge or, or the opportunity for us as individual investors is that we can buy these funds at discounts to their net asset value. So you, you could buy a bond fund that's selling at a, a 15% discount to net asset value. And, and closed-end funds, they're a, they're a smaller market. So what I like about them is, is they're not a market that hedge funds can play in. You don't see a bunch of institutional investors buying them because they just can't get the liquidity. So most owners of closed-end funds are individual investors. Which means, and, and one of the things that I'm always asking about, and in my book I, I talk about this, is to ask who's on the other side of the trade. Because investing is, it, it's, it's a competitive game, and we want to know who's selling us a particular investment. Just like when we buy a house, who's selling us a house or who's selling us a car? What do they know that we don't? And with most investments, Typically, if hedge funds or, or bots or institutions are involved, they, they know more than us as individual investors. But with closed-end funds, it's other individual investors, and they, they tend to panic in, in a market environment like today. And so they, they sell these funds. They're not sure necessarily what they're owning. And so then you see these discounts widen, and then that becomes more of an opportunity for us. That's That's really cool. So I guess... You know, mutual fund space, ETF space. I think of the like the big names, like Peter Lynch and his mutual fund from the '90s that had crazy returns. Um, today, it's like Kathy Wood and the Arc Fund. Are those closed end funds? Are those open end funds? What are the difference or similarities between those more popular funds and the ones you're talking about? So, so the Peter Lynch fund, the Fidelity, those are open end mutual funds. ARC is an exchange-traded fund, and, and I should probably extend my analogy to exchange-traded funds. So they exchange-traded funds are like closed-end funds in that they trade on an exchange, and you can see the price disconnect from the underlying net asset value. But with closed-end funds, you, or I'm sorry, with ETFs, you have what are known as authorized participants, basically institutional investors that are always looking at the price of the ETF compared to the net asset value, which gets published every 15 minutes when the market's open. And then they can buy and sell the underlying securities or what's known as a reference basket, as well as the underlying shares. They can short them. And so all that arbitrage allows ETFs basically to stay in line, the price to stay in line with the net asset value. And so Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF, a, I think it's ARKK, that's an ETF. Now, it's, it's distinct because it's an actively managed ETF, whereas most ETFs are, are passively managed. They're seeking to track a specific benchmark. But ARC is, is heavily active, very technology-focused, certainly down 60% year-to-date. But its price will stay close to its net asset value, where with a, a closed-end fund won't. And, and I mean, the, some of the big sponsors in closed-end funds are, are BlackRock, Nuveen. I mean, there are a number uh, of big-time sponsors. And, and one of the other differentiators with the closed-end funds is they tend to be leveraged. So they're borrowing money to leverage up 
the underlying assets to magnify the returns. So they tend to often be more income oriented. So you'll see distribution yields of six, seven, eight percent. And that's where they can be attractive is we can pick up a yield at six percent, seven percent in an asset class that, you know, it's selling at a, a discount to its underlying value of 15 percent. Is it as simple as finding those close end funds that are trading at a discount and buying them and selling them when they are fully valued? What kind of um, a strategy have you found tends to work well when talking about these kinds of investments? Well, what typically, what we're we're trying to find is a close-end fund whose discount is greater than average. And so if you go to a a website like CEF Connect, you can screen, it's free, you can screen based on uh, the biggest discount and they calculate what's known as a Z-score and it's basically a statistical measure and Morningstar reports the same thing. Basically, how big is that discount relative to its average? And so when I'm investing in closed-end funds, I'm typically looking for a Z-score of negative three or less. In other words, so it's negative four or negative, well, you probably don't get more than negative four. But generally, it's more negative than negative three. And that typically shows that the discount is greater than average. So that's an opportunity. And then the other thing to consider is, it's just recognize is is their dividend sustainable? So if they they have a six or seven eight percent yield, you know that dividend has to be funded somewhere, either out of the income, out of, of gains, and so it's just you know just like if you're going to analyze a a, st- a company to invest in a stock, it, there is some due diligence required on on closed end funds just to understand whether you know whether that income is sustainable or that dividend is sustainable. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, 
I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Kind of uh, to help educate people, and I guess myself too, with closed-end funds, do you have the same kinds of choices as, of, of baskets that you can choose from, or is it is it a smaller asset class and there's less choices than you would have with with ETFs? So if you're looking to invest in, uh, you know, just technology versus commodities versus maybe real estate, do you have different closed end funds that focus on those kinds of areas, or are they more a broad range of like you know this the Nasdaq and the S and P and the Dow kind of idea? No, they, they, they're all different types of asset classes. They, about 60% are more fixed income because, of the, just because they, they're focused on the distribution yield. But there's, there's equity. I mean, there's, there's value. There's growth. There's technology. There are, there are debt funds. There's, there's even you know, one of the holdings that I own is the Bearings uh, Corporate Investors Fund, the ticker's MCI. They basically do, basically do private market lending. So they're, they're lenders to private companies. And, you know, that's, that's an example of a fund that available within close end funds in that, you know, this is private debt. And so it's not necessarily valued every day. It's not ter- It's not illiquid, but this is a way that individual investors, we can get access to a private investment and, that isn't necessarily available, but, but within a public market category. So when we don't want it anymore, then we can sell it. So it's sort of access to illi- illiquid investments in a, a more liquid way. Kind of along those lines, is venture, do they have venture capital and private equity as well? I'm sure there are. They're, they're, they tend, the ones that are in sort of private equity type companies, because they do exist, they tend to have much wider discounts because it's so difficult to value those companies with something like private debt, like M- this, this particular closing fund, the Bearings Corporate Investors Fund, they, they strike their net asset value quarterly. So they're able to at least value the debt quarterly where, and, and that's the other thing with these, these closed end funds. If they're holding private assets, you want to dig into the financial or the, the 10 K or the just, or the, not the 10K, but the annual report, the semi-annual report, the prospectus, just to understand what, what is their valuation policy? Like, how are they valuing the assets in order to come up with the net asset value? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Okay. Yeah, I could see how that can be really helpful. So like if, if, um, I was telling somebody to go research an ETF, I know there's websites like ETF.com where people can go and there's almost like a database of, I don't know if it's every ETF, but it seems like any of the ETFs that you would think of seem to be on that website. 
Is there anything, I know you mentioned the website earlier, but is there anything like that for close-end funds? Is it just a matter of, I'm going to Google this fund and kind of have to do my own independent research uh, based on what they're disclosing? Like, what's the research process behind that? So the, the cefconnect.com is is the the main one that I use that provides some profile, allows you to screen. Morningstar covers closed-end funds, so you I mean they you can get the returns and some basic information. You know, typically after if I look at Morningstar CEF Connect, then then I'll go to the the sponsor's website and get the fact sheet. I'll look at the underlying documents, and and that's sort of the process. There, we do have on our website a free investment guide on how to research closed-end funds and explain more about them. And that, that could potentially be a, a helpful resource to listeners. Cool. What's the website? Uh, well, it's at moneyfortherestofus.com slash closed-end funds. So closed hyphen n hyphen funds. And I'll, I'll send you the link. You can put it in the show notes. So that that that's kind of a guide we wrote a couple years ago that's, that's helpful. So a, a question that kind of springs to my mind is what kind of investment vehicle would be best to invest with these funds like versus a, a traditional a Roth or a brokerage account? Where where would be the best place to put those or does it matter? Well, the, because they have higher distributions, you know, sometimes in, in a tax-deferred vehicle, an IRA, a Roth IRA, can be helpful, but the reality is, as as one's wealth grows, they can't put all of their assets in in uh, tax deferred vehicles. So I, I have exposure to closed end funds in both my taxable accounts as well as my tax deferred accounts. Okay, yeah, I think that's helpful to kind of think of. It's like if there's a focus on distributions, kind of treat it like you would any investment that generates higher income. Right. So that's. Definitely a fascinating option and something I know doesn't get a lot of press in the investing world. And so we appreciate you breaking down that that um, kind of an investment option for people. I know you had, this is going to like completely shift gears here, but I know you had a interesting podcast episode talking about commodities and how, you know, just to give like a little bit of background, commodities, if you think of oil, um, coal, gold, any any of the basing building blocks of the economy, really the price of those have been doing very poorly in the last couple decades. And so I know there's been a lot of talk out there about how maybe, you know, the economy has moved past commodities and and you know it's all a technology type company uh, economy now. What are your thoughts on commodities? And are, have you seen? Uh, break us, give us like a breakdown of of what you covered in that episode, and and kind of what what you've been observing in the world lately around commodities. Sure. So we have been in a commodities bear market, uh, really from 2011. So coming out of the Great Recession. We had, you know, the peak in 2008 and then commodities sold off and then they really peaked again in 2011. And then really from 2011 through kind of 2020, that May 2020 would really, I think you'd call it the bottom because if you recall, 
in May 2020, the price of oil went negative. There was a lot of press regarding that. And it wasn't oil itself, it was oil futures. And we'll get to that because it's important to recognize that as investors, we cannot go buy a barrel of oil. And so we, as individuals and even institutions, unless you're buying a ship of oil, you're investing in commodity futures, which is very different than investing directly in a commodity. If you go out and buy gold, you can buy a gold coin. But for most commodities, we can't access that. And so when we think about commodities, we've had a boom in commodities over the past several years. And much of that is certainly the Russians, Russia invasion of Ukraine has been part of that because a big part of the supply now has sanctions and that's caused some issues. But another issue within commodities is when we went into this bear market, you know, oil companies just didn't invest as much. The, their shareholders demanded that they, they pay higher dividends and that they be more disciplined in their investing in oil. And as a result, we had really some underinvesting in oil for about a six to seven year period. And then as we came out of the pandemic and as there were supply constraints and we had this underinvesting in a lot of different commodities, that shot the price of commodities up. And, and so then the big question is, are we in a new bull market for commodities or is this just a temporary thing? And it's, it's an incredibly difficult question to answer because unlike 20 years ago, when you can look at these very long cycles, we now have this energy transition going on, the electrification uh, of autos. And so at some point, you'll get more and more EVs online that obviously don't use oil. They'll use other ways to generate electricity. So, you know, in that episode, we kind of went back and forth and looked at both sides. Is there a new commodities boom because of the underinvestment or is this a temporary thing? And because of the energy transition, you'll see, and because China's economy is slowing and they were a big consumer of commodities in the prior bull market and their economy's transitioning. And so you have all these pieces going on. At the same time, the hardest thing about commodities, when you think about commodity futures, when you buy an ETF, such as the Deutsche Bank Commodity Tracking ETF or some other commodity ETF, let's say USO, just on oil, they're buying a commodity futures. And a commodity future is a promise to take delivery of a specific commodity in the future. Well, those, those prices of those futures are based on the consensus of what investors believe the price of that commodity will be 30 days from now, 60 days from now. And so with a commodity future, the only way to make money, if you're investing in ETF that's investing in commodity futures or you're doing it directly, is the commodity price has to do better than what everybody already expects. It has to beat the consensus priced into those contracts. And that's why where you can, you can see somebody investing in oil and as they roll over that contract, it loses money every month because the future price was too optimistic. And then it's called what's known as negative roll yield. And we have a, a, an essay on, on our website about how that works. But basically you can have this investment in a commodity and, and lose money unless we get a period like we just had the past two years where 
the commodity prices spiked way more than anybody thought. And that's why commodities are up 35% year to date. So it isn't just that they went up. They went up more than what everybody expected as priced in the futures contracts. Almost like whoever's selling these futures are the only ones who are making money off this. It doesn't seem to help the companies. It doesn't seem to help commodity traders. I mean, just just to be like completely simple, oversimplify something, it, it seems like whoever's selling these contracts is making a killing. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Plinky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Well, we... we we could sell the contracts. I mean, it, the commodity market is zero sum game. So if you're if you going long a commodity, there it's not like a vanguard selling it to you. It's it's somebody on the other side of the trade that believes believes the commodity will fall in price, or they're just they want to take the opposite and, and just take the roll. They'll just short the commodity every month, and then they'll capture that negative roll yield, and it ends up being a positive return. And so. Yeah, it, and then you, I mean, you have oil producers that are hedging. I mean, there are people, there are uses for commodities to hedge your production cost or something like that. But much of it, I agree with you, Andrew. It's speculative, but it's people speculating on both sides of the trade. And which is why commodities is an incredibly difficult way to invest because it's a zero sum game. You have to be smarter than the consensus to think things are going to do. And if your view is we're in a commodities bull market and the consensus is wrong, we're going to continue to, the prices are going to go up even more than people expect, then, then you go long. But you mentioned, you know, earlier, uh, gas prices and, you know, gas prices have fallen some. So commodities are off 15% in 
in the last month. So if an investor decided I'm going to go long commodities, invest in DBC, they're down 15% already, and it's only been a month. So they can be very volatile. So, you know, obviously we could get into all of the angles of, you know, whether what's going to happen in the future with commodities, but just let's just like sidestep that and let's just assume that somebody believes that we do have a commodity super cycle ahead, that whatever is happening now is something that seems like it would persist. It sounds like you're not going to recommend buying and holding these contracts. Where would you think an investor should start to look if they're wanting to position their portfolio for some sort of commodities bull market? The the way that, that I have invested in the past that we did when I was an institutional investor is is the Deutsche Bank Commodity Tracking ETF. So DBC is is the ETF. It what what's unique about that ETF? It it try it doesn't necessarily just buy the front month contract. So the one you know with the one that's thirty days out, it can vary which contract it buys in order to try to minimize this drag or this negative roll yield. It I I don't own commodity futures right now, and I wish I had bought them back in May 2020. But we're in the midst of the pandemic, and again, so I'm looking at this futures curves. And I could see, all right, the front month contract is negative, but we're assuming, I don't know, I think it was like $20 a barrel for oil for the next month. So then you're saying, okay, we'll we'll go up 20 bucks in a month. Like, I don't know. And that's the challenge with commodities is that I don't typically like to to, to invest in a way that I have to do better than what the consensus already thinks. And with a zero-sum game, that's exactly what you're doing. And that's that's why commodities are uh, a speculation, something I, I discuss, I've discussed on, on my show as well as the book. You know, what's the difference between an investment, a speculation, and a gamble? A speculation is a commodities where there's disagreement on whether what the price should be. So you have people shorting the commodity, people going long. Somebody's going to win, not everybody. With an investment... It has a positive expected return, has cash flow, it has something, some income. And so your returns expected to be positive. And then a gamble is something has a negative expected return. And so as an investor, I prefer investments versus speculations, although I'll have some. I have some gold, have some Bitcoin, et cetera. But most the workhorse of our portfolios should be investments with positive expected returns. So what kind of a allocation are you talking about when you mentioned the the Deutsch um, commodity basket, just ballpark kind of? Like how is it how is it invested or how like a typical like from an investor perspective? Yeah, like the latter. Oh well, I mean, generally speculations should be kept less than ten percent of your portfolio. Like I, I, I have seen, and that's the problem with speculations. People just get so excited. And they're so confident they're going to be right without really understanding it. I, I have a, a family friend that basically lost their farm betting on commodities. And, and I, and I went, it, it, it was so frustrating because he showed me this fund. It was a private fund investing in commodities. He was so, he was very excited about it. And, and I noticed, well, they closed that one fund and then they started a new one. So there was like a break in, in their track record. 
And I, I pointed out to him, and as I did more research, because they lost all the money. So here's a private commodity fund that had to shut down and then started a new one. And the guy still invested and lost his shirt and lost their farm. And so keep it less than 10% of, of your allocation. Like in the case, you know, I own, I have about three to 4% of my net worth in gold, gold coins. I mean, it, it, they're hedges, they're protection, but they're zero sum games. They'll only go up if people are willing to pay more. There's no cash flow associated with it. Yeah. So how, do, how does, uh, how does the commodity prices affect investments that we could make? So for example, uh, I noticed the other day that the price of copper has dropped, <laughs> you know, like oil did in 2020 and lithium has kind of gone the, the other way. And so when you think about kind of the EV coming revolution with cars, how do you know it's it's hard to look at some of those companies and try to figure out whether you think a company like Albemarle is going to be a winner in the long run versus a company that's mining copper and both are important to electric vehicles but it's kind of hard to to figure that out that's what i struggle with uh, well it is which is why i don't purchase individual stocks because <laughs> i spent 15 years Researching hedge fund managers and, and long only stock managers and came, came away disillusioned in the sense that here's the smartest investors in the world. Most of the time, they're wrong or they might be right about something, but then something complete surprise happens. And so, you know, my approach to investing is how do I invest in a way that I don't have to know what's going to happen? And, but even though, and everybody else still thinks they know what's going to happen. And that's what gives you opportunities like within closed end funds or, I mean, we still, at the end of the day, we have to make an investment. And so, I mean, there are areas in the market that can become more attractive, that get cheaper. And then, but I've always been an asset allocator focused on baskets of securities versus individual securities, you know, sort of ones that you Tuesday, unless, you know, it's something incredibly simple like a, a an I, Series I savings bonds or something like that. Can you give us just a taste of how you make those allocation decisions? Like what is it over, let's say, a five-year period that makes you say, I'm going to allocate more here, or I'm going to allocate more there. Can you give us an example? Yeah, so and I, this is what we did as institutional investors. It's what I do on my website. It's what I do in my personal investing is come up with expected returns for different asset types. So in, in the building blocks of that is what's its cash flow yield could be dividend yield. It's, you know, bond yield. If it's preferred stock, it's dividend yield. So I, I want to look at what that cash flow is. We want to come up with an estimate of how fast would that, that cash flow grow over time. You know, if it's a stock or a, and let's US stock market, for example, we can look at the dividend yield. It's one and a half percent right now. If we assume that earnings grow over 6%, that's the second element of it. And then the third thing that drives returns is what are investors willing to pay for that cash flow stream today versus five years from now? And so that we're looking at price to earnings ratios for, you know, different markets. And so I, that's, that's the approach I use for all different asset classes. And then look at and decide, okay, this area is more attractive. I want to add more there. 
but I'm also cognizant of the risk and the risk that that we use in our approach is maximum drawdown. So as an institutional investor, we focused on volatility, but the reality is, you know, volatility is not something that is intuitive to investors and we don't care about upside volatility. We, you know, if it goes up more than everybody expects, that's great. So I focus more on maximum drawdown. How much could we lose? Stocks historically have lost worst case scenario is 60%. So I want to scale my allocation to stocks, assuming they could lose 60%. And it, and not that 60% loss is bad. If you're a young investor without much money, it's fine. You just ride it through. But if you're nearing retirement, then it can it could impact your lifestyle. And so the idea is to scale your investments based on not only the downside risk, but the impact of that risk on your lifestyle. And then I'm just diversified on, you know, dozens of different types of investments and asset classes, both public and private. But I'm generally more a risk averse conservative type investor because I am, you know, older than than many. So I, I'm not a, a young pup anymore. So the reality is I don't need to take risk because I'm financially independent. So in that case, like I'm going to be a more conservative investor, but it's still going to be diversified and and still take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Yeah, I do like that really big picture approach and appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. A lot of good stuff there, David, and we really appreciate your time and you joining us. You have a great podcast called Money for the Rest of Us. Um, just even scrolling through the episode list, you can see a wide variety of topics. And I think that has um, an attractiveness all on its own, just based off of that. So you have your podcast. Where else can people go to find out more about you and what you're doing online? The, our main website's at moneyfortherestofus.com. So I'm there. I, I you know, occasionally dip into Twitter, at JD Stein. But uh, most of our free investment guides, such as unclosed-end funds, the one I mentioned on negative roll yield or investing in commodities, you can find that at moneyfortherestofus.com and the menu item is guides. Cool. Awesome. Well, again, David, we really, really do appreciate you taking the time to come join us today and helping educate us on all the great topics that we discussed today. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.